Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 71. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also, also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders and of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips." grass withers and the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So we're entering into a quick pace here at the end of the 22nd chapter of Luke, a quick pace of the Jesus betrayal and his crucifixion. And part of the reason why we're covering so much here today, all of those verses that we've just read, is because the, the content or the, the pace of the book at this point really has picked up. I mean, we've, as we've gone all these sermons through the book of Luke, we've covered a, quite a span of Jesus' ministry, three years of time. And so as you'll go along, Long events will be interspersed here and there, and there's, there's kind of a, a flow to the narration. But when we get to this section, following this prayer in the garden, 
you really feel the pace pick up. Luke is, develop, or is really one event right after the other. You can feel a, a climactic uh, event coming on here. We have spent a lot of time going over all of this, but at this point, Jesus has now been in the upper room, right? Served his disciples. The, the institution of, of communion, the breaking of bread, the new covenant institution has been made. They've gone to the garden and now Judas is going to show up. The betrayal is going to happen. And this, this event that, that the gospel of Luke has been looking forward to this whole time is now that, that ball is finally put into action. This is, this is now happening. Um, he's gone to the Mount of Olives to pray, and now the stage is set. Everything is ready to start, to start running. And the events of this, I assume, are pretty familiar with you, with you if um, you spent much time in church. We have the arrival of Jesus, G, Judas, not Jesus, Judas. We have the arrival of Judas, is his name, who is going to betray Jesus with a kiss, right? This symbol of friendship, this, uh, the, the, the kiss of betrayal, this sign of love that's, that is to be communicated. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Judas shows up and he betrays Jesus with, with a kiss, signifying to those who are with him, this is the guy who, who, who you're looking for. And then they get out a sword, and then we have only Luke records this, but the cutting off of the, the high priest uh, soldier's ear and Jesus sticking his ear back on. That's, that story is hard to forget. We have that event going on, uh, the clear rejection of violence by Jesus. Remember the, a few weeks ago, there was the passage about uh, Jesus says, when I sent out, sent you out before, don't take anything, but this time take a tunic, take a money bag, and take a sword. And then they go and they say, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus is frustrated. He says, oh, that's, it's enough. Well, anyone who would take that passage and say Jesus is pro-violence, immediately is going to get that kind of blown out of the water because here is their chance to revolt and to, to fight off those who have came to arrest them. And Jesus is, no, in, in fact, so, so radically against that, he's actually going to put the ear back on the guy. There's, there's something uh, of purpose going on here. We have the familiar story of Peter denying Jesus the three times before the rooster crows and then running off weeping, realizing what he has just Done, And then Jesus goes before this council and they charge him with blasphemy, claiming to be God. This is the, the charge that he dies for. So there are a few major things that I want us to pick up on here. And the first is in this opening section, Jesus makes this statement. When they come to arrest him, they, they, they come armed. And he says in verse 52, if you come out against come out as against a robber with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me. And then he says this interesting statement, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. A specific time has now come. This is your hour. There's, there's been this lead up all along through the gospel. Something's on the horizon. And Jesus now says, this is your hour, the power of darkness. Jesus has known this was coming. He's not surprised by it. It's almost like he's telling them, 
the reason why you're doing, let me tell you, the reason why you're doing this is your hour, your time has now finally come. The hour of darkness is here. The reason why you're doing this, it's right now, it, it is your time. At a level they don't even comprehend of why they're doing it. Jesus is saying, now is your time. But also within this statement is this understanding of this is a specific amount of time. Now is your hour. There, it's a special designated time. This is not now is the ruin of all things and all things go into your hands forever. Jesus is saying this is your hour. You have a limited time. Here it is. This is your hour. The power of darkness is coming upon us. But the underlying, the subtext to that is one day or one moment coming soon, your hour will be up. But now is your hour and the power of darkness but just as the power of darkness has come, and it is their hour, the time will come when that hour is up and the darkness will, will fade. The, the reign of Christ, Christ will reign supreme. But this is now, this thing we've been looking for, this moment we've been anticipating has come. Now is your hour. But this is not a surprise to us, right? I mean, we're over 90 sermons into Luke, which is not a surprise. We've, the reader of Luke is not surprised when this begins to happen. Jesus has known this all along. Luke has not hidden from us like we aren't reading along happily in the Gospel of Luke and all of a sudden, well, this came out of left field. No, Jesus has, and, and Luke has recorded for us all along, this is what's going to be happening. It isn't even like subtle foreshadowing. Like, you know, you read it and like, oh, that's, and I wonder if that's telling us something more is going to happen. It's not even foreshadowing. If you still have your Bible out, I want you to look at a few of these places just to make it explicitly clear. But in Luke chapter 9, back on page 1030 of your pew Bible, Jesus foretells his death. And he's, he has alluded to his death. Luke has alluded to his death many times throughout the gospel. But here's a specific statement from Jesus. Verse 21, he strictly charged and commanded to tell this to no one. This is after the confession of Jesus as the Christ. Don't tell anyone, verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Here's the first mention explicitly from Jesus. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to be killed. They're going to capture me. They're going to take a hold of me. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected and be killed. He knows this is going on. And then just a few verses later in 19, in 944... We see this, uh, Jesus again foretells his death while they were all marveling at everything he was doing. Jesus said to his disciples, verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And that isn't a, that isn't a positive way that the language there is this is a good, he's going to be delivered. It is a, going to be a, a criminal act to deliver. There's going to be a violent act delivered into the hands of men. One last place Jesus mentioned this is Luke 19. Go back to Luke 19. We just covered this. This is a little closer to where we've been. But Luke chapter 19, verses 31 through 33. I'm not 19. That's not right. I hate when this happens. This is what happens when you use different Bibles to do your um, 
study, and then you use a different one up here. There is a third prediction. Maybe if someone could find it and shout it out to me. But there is a third prediction of Jesus right there. I thought it was around 19, but there it is not. 18? Thanks, Darla. Hey, there it is. I'm a chapter off. Luke 18, 31 through 33. And, he, and taking the 12, this is Luke 18, 31. Taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will Rise. Jesus is being very specific. Three instances there, finally, we got to. Three instances that Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen to me. I, this, so when we get to Luke chapter 22, at the end of the chapter, it doesn't come to us as a surprise. This has been what is going to happen all along. And further evidence of Jesus knowing this is what's going on is we can look at the, at the denials of Peter, right? Just earlier in chapter 22, Jesus has told Peter, look, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter, no, I'll, 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 go, to, I'll go to the death with you. I, no way that's going to happen. And then what do we have? The fulfillment of that specific prophecy going on right in this, this very narrative. It comes to pass just as Jesus said it would, which, makes there, which gives this passage a certain irony. If you look at 22 and the section verses 63 through 65, when Jesus, Jesus is mocked, right? The men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? They're mocking him. Come on, Jesus, prophesy. If you know, if you know these things, tell us who hit you. But what they don't realize is in that very act, they're fulfilling the things he's already prophesied. They're, they're trying to mock him. Come on, be a prophet. Not realizing that all along, they're fulfilling what he's prophesied. It was, you hear, do you see the irony in that? What Jesus very easily probably could have just said, hey, this is your name. These are your folks. This is where you live. Here's your address. He could have pulled the, the mailman joke on them. You live at this location. He could have done that. that he doesn't. But the, the, the irony prophesy who is it that struck you. The very things they're walking out are the things Jesus has foretold specifically in Luke. These are the things that are going to happen. Things are going exactly as Jesus prophesied. This is not the colossal failure on God's part. This is not this, the, the universal blunder that God is going to somehow try to work for our good. This is God's plan. This is what he has purposed to happen. This is what Jesus knows is going to happen. And we see it walked out perfectly in real space and time. Then after this comes the charge of blasphemy. Uh, it's kind of confusing language because you think, well, Jesus doesn't come out and say, I am, the, I am God. But, he, but he's, he's, he starts it off by saying, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you, you won't answer. And so then they say, are you claiming? And he says, you say that I am. And there's no misunderstanding from the text. They understand him as saying he is God. There is no, that's why they have gone to this condemnation of, 
we, we don't need to hear anything more. This man is claiming to be God, which is deserving of his death. Big swath, whole bunch of stuff going on there. Is there practical application here? Like, so that's kind of one of the, you're trying to get to, okay, so here's this big narrative. Okay, Darren, how does this apply to my life? Okay, what's, what's going on here that brings me application? You know, maybe they were just in the garden, right? And Jesus says, um, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And what do they do? They fail to pray, and they enter into temptation, and, and, it, and they, they abandon Jesus. So maybe the practical application is when Jesus tells you to pray, you probably should pray. Well, okay, that, that's maybe an okay application, possibly. Is the application that um, don't deny Jesus like Peter did? And that's an okay application. Okay, I, I could get behind that, I suppose. Maybe the application is um, don't doubt Jesus. He knows what he's doing, right? He's made these prophecies. He knows what he's doing. Don't doubt Jesus. Well, that's maybe even better. Those are, those are all maybe interesting, decent applications. But what is the climactic point that Luke is highlighting here? What is the big idea that Luke is trying to get across? And it's super complex. I, I hope you can pick up on. I hope you can grasp this, but the big idea that Luke is pushing on is that Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. Look at all of these events, all of this stuff going on, all of these prophecies, all of this understanding, and Jesus walks it out perfectly. Jesus walks it out perfectly. There, there are so many different realities. When you think about all of the particulars that would have had to come together, all the, the personal decisions that are going on at that time between all of the different people around, the, the chief priests, the scribes, the disciples, all of these things, Jesus expresses his absolute sovereignty over all of these things by accomplishing his purposes. Jesus is worthy of our worship. When, when things like that come together, sometimes the, the, the biggest practical application, the only logical response is worship. When you see something this incredible happening, the only possible response, the only proper response is worship. So it's, it's softball season. Like we're just, uh, I've been, because I've got a niece who's playing Raider softball. Um, I've been going to lots of softball games and I'm not, I'm not like a sport a sport guy. I'm not, I, 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 I enjoy and I'm entertained by watching sports, but there's, you know, there are those people who get real nerded out like inside baseball and stats and all of these like insider things and the plays and how they all work. And so I've been going and I've got a friend who's, who's so, such a nerd about softball. He brings an iPad and he keeps track of all the pitches and all the plays and all the outs and all the every every little bit of info he he puts on an app he has on his iPad. And so you can ask him at any point um, this hitter, uh, what how they do last time they faced uh, Caroline? How did they hit? Or or one of our own batters? How did they bat last time? Well, you know, he'll say, well, the pitch was inside, and, they, and she put it in right field. And so you know, you're like, how do you know this stuff? You know, all of these interesting details, right? So as I sit around with these moms and dads of, of these softball kids, I learn a lot of things and. And some of the plays they draw up are fascinating to me. And if you know softball, please just be uh, entertained by my poor description of what's going on. But there's, there's a thing called a squeeze play, right? 
And my dad's like, he's smirking at me. Yes, yes, my son, there is. But, uh, but so, you know, and it's where they have a runner on third base, a person's on at, at batting, and there's only one out, so they can, they don't have to worry. So on the first strike, there's a very specific setup that they can lay down a bunt, and it's okay to get out at first, and the, and the person at third, they run this squeeze place where they're going to lay down a bunt and the third baseman's already running and basically halfway to home as the pitch, when the pitcher throws. So they're halfway down before the bunt even gets laid down. And so they lay down the bunt. Well, this runner, it's a suicide squeeze that if the bunt doesn't get laid down, they're going to get tagged out by the catcher because they're way off the base. And, but, but if the bunt gets laid down, base, there's no way anyone's going to be able to field the ball, get it back to the catcher, and, and stop the play, right? And you ever see that go on? Like, there's one thing to do what I just did, which is describe all the boring details about it. That, that's interesting. But it's another thing, when you're sitting and you watch that go on and, and, and performed efficiently, there's only one response to that. And it isn't, you know, oh, this isn't, you know, it's celebration, right? When you see that go on, when you see all of these factors line up just right, and you see the kids who have, who have worked on their bunting skills and worked on running the bases and know all, these, know all of these elements of practice, and you see them all walked out in fulfillment, there's only one logical response. It's, it's celebrate. It's cheer. I mean, unless you're totally messed up and you sit down and you nerd out on it, then, then I, don't, I can't help you. But for most of us, the response is going to be the fulfillment of all of these things is, is something to celebrate. It is something to celebrate. Now, why am I talking softball? Well, in that moment, all of these things are going on and the only proper response is to celebrate. Well, in the same way, when we see all of these things coming to pass in the life of Jesus, there's, there is a ton of stuff to dig down in on and to, to compare the prophecies of the Old Testament with what's going on now. There's, there's tons of ways to dig into that. But at the end of the day, the only proper response when you see all this taking place is to, is to worship, is to celebrate. Look at what God is doing. Look at all of these things he is working out. The only proper response is to celebrate what is happening here. At all of these things, same things at the same time, we are seeing fulfillment. Jesus is walking out exactly what he wanted to walk out. Not only is it what he predicted in the book of Luke, it's what's been predicted long ago. If you have your Bible out, you can look back. We don't go here as often as we could, but it's a very well-known passage to Isaiah 53. And we see this 400 years before Christ's life. We see this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's a very well-known passage, but... So clearly laying out hundreds of years before the life of Christ, the suffering that was going to come to this Messiah. All of these events are putting on display Christ's power to fulfill exactly what he planned and his desires. Why does that produce worship? 
If Jesus is worthy of worship, why do these events then produce in us worship? Well, I'll give you two reasons why that should produce worship. The first is just because that is incredible. I mean, and there's a sense if, if, if you're watching the softball game and the other team performs really well, you don't like it. But you ever sit at a game like where the other team is so good, you just can't help but kind of like cheer because it's amazing they can play as well as they did, that they did, they performed that so well. Like I'm watching a softball game and I have to be kind of nervous if I'm sitting on the wrong side. I'm like, that was really good for the wrong team. But, but you can't help but appreciate all of these things coming together. The first reason why it's worthy of worship, it is amazing it is amazing the sovereignty of God in action, working all of these things out just as he said he would do. There's a sense in which just at a surface level, the ability of Jesus to walk out and to fulfill everything that he said he would do is incredible. He is revealing his identity as God. And for that alone, we should worship. But there's more reason than just that. The second reason that, we sh that this is worthy of our worship is not just that it was done, but that Christ's fulfillment of these events, his walking out of this mission is worthy of our worship because we know that he did it for sinners like us. Not only is it incredible that he did it, but he did it to save sinners. He did it to save you and to save me. If we look at Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, carrying on, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, speaking foretelling of Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own ways. But the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Why is this worthy of worship? Why is Jesus worthy of our worship? Not just that he could pull this off, which in and of itself is a pretty impressive thing and is worthy of our worship. But the fact that he went ahead with this mission and he persevered in this purpose to save sinners. To save sinners. He carries these things out for you and for me. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or the NIV, God made him who knew no sin, being Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is worthy of our worship because he stays the course and carries this out to save sinners from the wrath that is coming their way. Apart from Christ, the only thing on a sinner's horizon is wrath and justice. The only thing on a sinner's horizon is what they deserve for their eternal transgression, rebellion against God. But through faith in Christ and his work, that wrath that's coming toward us is expiated. It's given out to Christ, put upon him. He marches forward in this mission. Do you hear what I'm saying? <laughs> what would you do with all of this power and this ability to foretell the future and do all these things? What would you do with it? 
And what does Christ do with it? He uses this sovereignty. He uses this all-powerfulness to do what? To save, to give his life to save sinners. Why should we worship? Because this was all planned out and worked to save sinners. So this morning as we head to communion, let the truth of these events, that Jesus is worthy of worship, let the truth of these events and their power to reconcile even the worst of sinners to God, let it provoke you to worship. To worship, not Okay, not, not category clarifying, not abstract, but worship. If you see this, the, the, the hour of darkness brings blindness, and these, these men are blind to who Christ is. But as the, as the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it, as the light of the truth of the gospel shines out, we are given eyes to see. And if you see this, there's only one response. It is worship. That Jesus would do this to save me, to bring my reconciliation. Let this provoke you to worship. As we come to communion, don't let it be a static, uh, just repetition thing that we do. This is the next, 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 and then leave. This is a moment for us to come and to tangibly put, put substance to, to this truth that we believe of Christ laying down his life, giving up his body and his blood, to bring our forgiveness. And the only proper response when you see that is to worship. Pray for eyes to see what Christ has done for you clearly and in seeing it clearly, let's worship. We pray with me? Father, give us eyes to see. If it's for the first time in this place this morning, God, I pray that you would open blind eyes to see the truth of the gospel of a savior who came and in his sovereignty worked out all of the details, accomplished his mission of saving sinners through the giving of his own life, retaining you in your justice and in your righteousness, God, and also at the same time earning for us righteousness through faith in him. Father, open eyes to that truth in this place this morning. And Father, if it's a truth that we have clung to, we have embraced. Father, I pray with, I, with Psalm 51 that you would restore the joy of our salvation in this place this morning. That what would be provoked in us is nothing short of worship. You deserve it. You are worthy of all of our worship. And God, may we leave this place as we go out from this place this morning, God, living lives of worship. Father, you are worthy of every area, every moment, of every breath. Give us eyes to see that truth and hearts satisfied and rejoicing in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.